Welcome to The Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Miles Hickson. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today we are pleased to talk to Father Victor Lee Austin. Father Austin is the theologian in residence in the Episcopal Diocese of Dallas and an adjunct professor of theology at Neshota House Theological Seminary. And I should say that his class on theological anthropology really was one of my favorite classroom experiences at Neshota House. Um, He has a PhD in theology from Fordham and has served in multiple parishes in New York State, including St. Thomas Church Fifth Avenue in New York City. He's written for First Things and the Covenant blog at Living Church, as well as authoring four books, including Up With Authority, Christian Ethics, A Guide for the Perplexed, The Beautiful Theo Memoir, Losing Susan, Brain Disease, The Priest's Wife, and The God Who Gives and Takes Away, and most recently, Friendship, The Heart of Being Human. Thank you so much for joining us, Father Austin. How are you? I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Excellent, excellent. Well, we wanted to have you on because one of the the episode that's coming out in conjunction with this is continuing our discussion of this season on Catholic social teaching, particularly applied to pro-life issues. And so you were one of the you were the top name on our list when we uh, when we talked about who who we could bring in to uh, help set us straight on some of these issues. So um, one of the themes that has come up throughout our season and virtually all of our conversations on Catholic social teaching and the related issues involved in that is a foundational point, I think, for theological anthropology. That is that the value of the human person isn't based on functionality, but on ontology. And so I think we would all agree that that's true, but I guess, why is that so? What gives the person a kind of unqualified dignity? Yes, yes, a good place to start. Um, I suppose there's a very easy answer, and that is that God gives us that dignity. We we have dignity because God is our maker and we are his creatures. But um, yes, it's good to say uh, that this is in us or is something that's true about us because of who we are. That's ontology, of course, not what we do functionality. But who we are is not, um, is not a property that we have, right? Um, dignity is not uh, something that uh, I have as, uh, on, on top of being six feet tall or so many years old or whatever. Uh, dignity is, um, well, dignity is our uh, uh, saying that we, um, Hmm. That we are. Um, oh, it's an. I'm thinking a lot lately about the Declaration of Independence, and so when it says that all men are created equal, uh, that's sort of what we're pointing to. They obviously knew um, uh, that they weren't saying that every person is equal to every other person, um, but rather that by created equal. We are equally created. Uh, does that make sense? Uh, I think that's I think that's helpful. Sure. So we, that we, there are other th- you know other stuff is created and we're not equal to it. We we have a relationship to other people that's different than our relationship to things and different than our relationship to livestock or pets, um, and different also in our relationship to angels or uh, any other beings that might be uh, superior to us. Or we d- we don't, even, don't even need to rank them as inferior or superior. It's just that when we're talking about other human beings, we are talking about people who are uh, sort of equal, equally created with us. So in a sense, there's no, there's really no I without the, the thou that makes the I possible. Yes. Yes. Mm. Good stuff. Well, all right. So kind of a a two-part question. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about your new book on friendship and um, what is, what is so important about friendship? So, and then, and then kind of a second part would be, how does our understanding of friendship come to bear on pro-life issues? So, 
first your book, what's important about friendship, and then bring that to bear in the conversation of Catholic social teaching and pro-life. Sure. Yes. I've been interested in friendship uh, for a long time um, and finally got a book out on it. Uh, it's struck, it's an understudied uh, aspect of um, philosophy and ethics. Uh, but it has been more uh, studied in the last um, uh, uh, generation or so, thanks to the uh, rise of virtue ethics. Uh, uh, virtue ethics has, uh, so th there, there are now more books about it out there. Uh, theologically, what I have come to see is that um, friendship is a way we can articulate how we are related. I'm saying, let me back up. Friendship is a, is a, is a way to articulate everything uh, about Christian faith, about the big Christian story. It's not the only interpretive key, but I think it's as, it's as equally good as any other. That is to say, uh, to make three points, that we are created for friendship, and we are redeemed, that is what Jesus gives us in redemption, is the possibility of living in friendship. And our eternal destiny, as it were, is to live as friends with one another. So from creation, redemption, um, the ultimate Christian hope, all of these are about friendship, it, it seems, or can be stated in terms of friendship. Um, to unpack that a little bit, one could start with um, the middle, which is to say John 15, where Jesus says, I call, I, I call you friends. Um, I don't call you servants anymore because you understand what's going on. I've shared everything with you um, that I received from the Father. So they have a common mind. They have a, that intimacy of understanding. Uh, this is on the eve of his death. He's talking to his Disciples, uh, Judas has gone out. He says, I have called you friends. He defines friendship then as uh, greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. So he's interpreting the cross as the laying down of his life for his friends. Expansively, those friends come to be everyone who, who hears the good shepherd's voice and follows him. Uh, starting, uh, I like to say, with Mary Magdalene in John chapter 20, where she recognizes him when he calls her by name, uh, sort of fulfilling John 10. Uh, but anyway, so friendship is, uh, is pretty solidly uh, a way to interpret what Jesus is all about, a strong Johannine thing there. Uh, I think to look at creation, uh, we could say, <clears throat> that um, the, the very remarkable thing in chapter two of Genesis, where we suddenly have a statement, it is not good. After so many, it is good statements of Genesis chapter one. Uh, it is not good that the man be alone. It says there um, the, that one could argue that friendship is the solution to the not good problem. Um, it's now that's a bit um, uh, broader of an argument, or or slightly less clear, I think, than John, because in chapter two of Genesis, it's interpreted in terms of marriage. Um, but that said, it's clearly not saying that you have to be married in order to be a full human being. Otherwise, we would have to deny Jesus full humanity and. Um, the good, the full humanity of a lot of other people. Uh, so anyway, so that there is something about uh, friendship that's there, I think, uh, in creation. And I like saying with Herbert McCabe that uh, heaven just is human beings living together as friends. I think that's beautiful, especially in light of Kind of what we see going on a lot in our culture where friendship gets redefined and co-opted on social media you, oh. have x, you have x amount of friends and so that this concept of friend is so denigrated 
to, to acquaintance or to just someone that I had coffee with once, but that mm. friendship is something that is so deeply embedded in what it means to be, what it means to be human, to live out a full flourishing human life. And I love that casting the gospel as God, God came in Jesus Christ to make us his friends. That's beautiful. Yeah, I was thinking about McCabe, actually, while you were talking about that, specifically in his argument about prayer, you know, this idea that that Christ overcomes this metaphysical gap between creature and creator so that when we pray, God doesn't see us as creatures, but as sons. And I love that line. It's stuck with me since we read it for your class, actually, um, pretty, pretty intensely. And uh, so it, there's a sense, I guess, in which we could maybe uh, up in that to say he sees us as friends as well, or 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 maybe sonship is a, a very intimate kind of friendship. So, yes, to yes, yes. Um, I think um, uh, again, in line of John, in light of John fifteen, we could say that to be a friend means to share a common mind, uh, to share a kind of intimacy of of understanding. So insofar as God shares his mind, his spirit with us, uh, which is, you know, McCabe sees all that is happening right at the cross, right? The, the cross is where all prayer happens, um, sharing in the life of God. Insofar as we're able to do that, God has lifted us up from the level of mere creatures and made us in some sense uh, on a par with him, uh, some sort of parody so that we can share and we can be his friends. Well, Father Austin, that, that sort of leads us into, into a few kind of topical discussions. Uh -huh. um, so in, in light of all this, in light of this sort of uh, ontology and the understanding of dignity, um, obviously all of us in this conversation can be described as pro-life. Um, but sometimes the contours of, of what it means to be pro-life can be difficult to discern. Uh, so we had a question from a listener and member of our communion of Patreon saints. Uh, his name's Jeff. And he asks the question, what exceptions, if any, allow abortion to be morally acceptable? So that would be a medical emergency. And if so, who then gets to define what a medical emergency is, et cetera? Yeah. Yes, excellent question. I am um, just realizing. I think I think in the previous question there was a, a pro-life piece that I didn't speak to. So um, I'm I'm glad to have this. Um, um, with regard to pro-life and friendship, I think we would want to say that um, uh, that the the heart of of a pro-life conviction is that every human being is potentially my friend. That every human being is potentially Jesus' friend. And I am, God willing, God by God's grace, a friend of Jesus also. And, um, and I believe in the world to come that all the friends of Jesus will be friends with all the friends of Jesus. In this life, um, there are problems of finitude so that uh, we, friendship actually takes time. It doesn't just happen uh, like social media would make us think uh, to be so superficial and uh, someone we met once and that sort of thing. It takes time to build up a friendship. Um, and also it, it takes a certain um, gift. Um, and part of that of time is, is a gift of growing into the possibility of friendship. That is, the, po the potentiality is there always, but for it to be actualized, take something. So when my children are young, um, it is not good for them. It's not my loving thing for them, for me to treat them as, for me to share my mind with them completely. I need them to grow to a place where then, God willing, we will be able to sh have a common mind or to, to be intimate with each other in terms of our, of our thoughts. Um, nonetheless, they are, in another sense, my friends from the get-go because of that possibility that is inside them. 
So that's a long roundabout way of just laying some context for pro-life. What sort of exceptions? Yes. Um, what sort of permissions? I think um, I would make two distinctions. One is between what is legal and what is moral. It strikes me that what is legal in any particular uh, society is going to be limited by finitude um, so that the not everything that is wrong uh, can be forbidden in law. Um, and not everything that is right needs to be articulated by law. It is um, whether such and such um, a procedure, which would be the, the um, killing of, um, of a fetus or an embryo, whether such a procedure ought to be illegal would depend on um, circumstance. And that's because of a number of reasons. Uh, one is that if the law is too strict, it brings too strict for the particular people that it's legislating over. It brings uh, disrepute upon the law. So I, um, I remember Richard John Newhouse saying that um, uh, in, in a, uh, a lecture he gave at General Theological Seminary, we had a little pro-life group there back in the 80s and we invited him to come. And he said that um, back then the abortion rate in America was about one and a half million a year. And he said uh, he could imagine a future where it would be say 100,000 a year. That the goal is to have the maximum protection of the unborn in law that can be sustained. But morally, it's a different matter. Morally, it is, um, um, it's always going to be the case that any deliberate aiming at the death of any human being is a, um, is a fraught matter. Uh, and if that's the only consideration that's involved, it would be a wrong matter. Uh, I, do you think I've got Jeff's question? Yeah. I think so. I think, I think He's just interested. I think he is more interested in the moral question. So I guess perhaps in, in a situation where, you know, the, the mother's life is in danger, mm -hmm. what would the moral situation be where it's either kind of her or the baby? I think that's kind of what he's getting at are, are those scenarios. And I know those are, are somewhat rare, but I guess um, those are questions that are often raised in these kind of discussions. Okay. And behind that is the question of the morality of um, self-defense. Um, and, um, uh, and we have a sort of change in the tradition. Uh, Augustine justifies war on terms of defending the neighbor. Uh, so war, war is, is, is permitted as a matter of, uh, of, of what do I want to say? Um, Throwing love to one's neighbor who is who's being uh, attacked, and perhaps also of showing love to the attacker by perhaps bringing the attacker to his senses, um, but it is not permitted for self-defense. Um, Aquinas uh, does allow uh, lethal action in self-defense, um, so that's you know that. I mean, that kind of lays it out. Um, if, um, if the unborn child is going to die anyway, it's a different, you know, it's all kinds of different matters. But I mean, that's where one just, I think one, it's very hard for any person to prescribe to another person what you should do in such a case. I, I don't have that much wisdom. Yeah, that can be tricky to argue from those kind of extraordinary situations for sure. He does ask a follow-up question. I think this actually touches on something you were saying uh, earlier in your answer, which uh, had to do with kind of the separation between a legal and moral answer to the to the mm -hmm. problem that is posed. So 
Um, given where we are culturally, given with how our sort of dominant uh, society views life, what exactly would be the sort of ideal policy solution that the Christian should be advocating here in this context, Um, especially in light of our emphasis on autonomy and choice within the broader culture, Um, especially since we have to, since we're dealing with people who don't really share the same theological anthropology that we would have. Yes. Yes, um, I, I, I doubt that there is any ideal policy solution. Um, one strategy of, of, pro, of people with pro-life convictions over the last um, couple of decades at least has been to try to um, uh, encourage uh, reflection before abortion happens. Uh, so uh, waiting periods, that sort of thing, try to encourage uh, awareness of community resources, so, sort of requirements of, of um, knowledge of that sort of thing being given to someone before an abortion. Um, and also highlighting in terms of law, how extreme the Roe v. Wade um, license is, um, it, how it's misstated as outlying abortion only in the first three months. So there's in fact uh, very little uh, Supreme Court uh, defensible uh, restriction on abortion. Um, they, later on, um, Doe v. Bolton, the, the companion original case, allows abortion uh, if necessary for a mother's health a woman's health and and the health is defined broadly to include uh, mental health um, and restrictions on how that's um, <clears throat> uh, there are very few restrictions on how that's determined so that that sort of thing um, is um, so it's chipping away at the edges trying to sort of reshape the conceptuality of society more important perhaps is trying to transform community by exhibiting concrete care as many Christians do in lots and lots of ways for, um, for um, pregnant women and for, for those who live in poverty and uh, for elderly people, uh, et cetera. Uh, for the, sort of the whole gamut of social um, concern and sort of clever, uh, Americans are traditionally very good at this, uh, clever thinking about how can we get together to help improve a certain situation uh, that's uh, relying on that kind of uh, on the ground uh, work and to encourage more of that, I think. Um, would, would it be fair to summarize uh, kind of what you're saying as as a recognition that in many ways, the sort of political policy changes downstream from a kind of larger cultural change. So the pro-life movement is healthier when it's aimed at actually transforming communities at the local level, um, rather than putting in as many Supreme Court justices as they possibly can to overturn this law or, you know, stack the stack the Senate and Congress in a certain way so that we can pass you know, certain bills and things like that, but that, but that these kind of, that, that, that kind of um, social change is a prerequisite to, to any effective policy change. Right. I think, I think that's right. Although of course the relationship is circular and whenever the, the idea of working for some legal restrictions around the edges of the abortion liberty is to change sort of social mind, sort of cultural mind. Um, one change that I think we, we should work on a lot is, is thinking about um, human beings as, as our friends uh, uh, and, to, uh, and to love and how can we show love for human beings that are um, on the edges of things uh, one way or the other. And create and foster communities that care. Well, that's all great um, reflection and helpful. And I think it's helpful that idea of humans being friends as we kind of move from one end of the life spectrum to the next. And we talk about euthanasia. 
which is becoming increasingly unpopular uh, in our culture. And what's interesting is we often hear euthanasia spoken of in, in compassionate terms with phrases like death with dignity or, or similar mantras. And that the argument is one that is couched in this humane framework. And it's, it's, it's a different conversation, right, than abortion, because abortion, you have a fetus that can't speak or can't vie for his or herself. But in this sort of conversation, you often will have the individual who's choosing the uh, assisted suicide for their own life. And so it's, it's a very different conversation. But that, why is this assessment that uh, death with dignity or that one's endings of one life is humane? Why is that assessment, assessment ultimately flawed? Yes. Um, I guess because it, hinge, it hangs on an understanding of the human being as alone, that I am essentially alone. Um, and any engagements I have with other people are secondary to that. Um, I can, I have been mostly persuaded by Nigel Bigger, who teaches ethics at Oxford, in an earlier book of his called Aiming to Kill, um, he argues, um, I think just for the sake of the argument, actually, he, he would posit that there may be extraordinary circumstances where the, the morally right thing to do would be to aim to deliberately kill another human being. He's not talking about war or a police action, but he means uh, euth he means what we normally call euthanasia. Um, he's willing to grant that, um, I think, only as a as a as a supposition, in order to move on to the next thing, which is if we were moved by compassion for people in such a situation to say this is the the morally right thing to do. And we then make a euthanasia, um, we decriminalize euthanasia in, uh, in so whatever sort of restrictive way we can. What we are doing is establishing the, uh, a practice where it is permitted for one human being to, to kill another, even though circumscribed as it is. And that practice will change the way people think about being in that kind of situation. So it's sort of a distinction of first order and second order. And he sees so many problems with establishing the practice that he thinks it needs to be always wrong uh, legally. It needs to be always illegal on, in, on the concrete case. But there's, there's no way to open it up without opening it up, as it were. To, you know. So that's, I mean, think about, um, think about two things. Uh, one is that um, a person who who is uh, who's getting old will, will probably say something like, "I don't want to burden my loved ones." I mean, that is a common right. So none of us wants to burden another person. Um, but if it is legal for me to ask a doctor to, because I fall into a certain category, to ask a doctor for the medicine which I can take that will end my life. If that becomes legal, then I have, I have this sort of, this little push saying, I could get out of the way. I could stop using up my savings. I'd have more money to give to my heirs. Um, I would stop requiring um, all of their time and all this. And it's legal, so I can get. So people who might otherwise never have thought this are now. It's not going to be there. Something that they have to think about and decide one way or the other. Uh, those who have weaker social connections will be particularly vulnerable to this. People who have few friends, people who are um, isolated because of other things in their lives, perhaps poverty, perhaps disability perhaps social cruelty or whatever, people who are, and the, the, the people who will be hurt the most by euthanasia are the poor and the vulnerable. Um, 
because they will not see uh, other ways. And this will be there as one of their options to do. Um, so it's, that is a way to see the second order of harm uh, the, the, on, on society as a, broad, as a whole. Even if we were to grant, which I don't necessarily think we should, but even if we were to grant that there were some cases where uh, individually it could be justifiable. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you so much. There's just, there, there's so much to think about in terms of when you start an act that becomes legal as drastic as taking a human life, what is that going to do in generations to come or for society as a whole? And I'm not sure that the conversation about assisted suicide often gets beyond just the humane ending of one's life. It never can look beyond, as you said, to those second tier issues. So that's very helpful. Thank you. And if I could add just a little, yes, uh, a while back, Gilbert Mylander had a wonderful essay called, I Want to Burden My Loved Ones. Now, he wasn't talking about euthanasia there, but he was talking about uh, living wills, you know, where we say, if such and such happens to me, this is what I want done. Um, so, so that others won't have to, won't be burdened with making those decisions for me. Well, Mylander says that's why they're there. <laughs> and for us to try to make those kinds of decisions for ourselves is for us to close our eyes to something that's true about dying. And that is when we die, we are letting go of control over our lives. So we, we abandon ourselves back to God. We abandon our, we lose control over our lives. That's what, deeply, that's what's wrong with suicide is trying to shake my, trying to control my life to the very end. No, you know. And so uh, I recommend um, and, and uh, do, do it for myself as well, a, a sort of medical power of attorney which says, this is the friend, or this is the relative, or this, these are the people who I want to make um, medical decisions for me if I'm no longer able to make those decisions for myself. Um, I want to burden them. They love me. So that, that sort of opens up the, the topic um more to, to a, a sort of pro-life ethic. Uh, because when we talk about being pro-life, typically we talk about things at the beginning of life. We talk about abortion and we talk about things at the end of the life, right? We talk about euthanasia. And it's right that we talk about those things. But as Christians who seek to be pro-life for theological reasons, uh, these stances are necessary, but not necessarily sufficient. Um, because there's so much of life that happens in between. Um, so how does a, a consistent pro-life ethic um, matter? Why, what is that a look like um, for us in between these two sort of huge issues that we, that we have to talk about? And where are some areas, uh, especially as uh, American Christians that we need to improve? Well, I, um, I think, uh... Uh, if I were to write another book <laughs> on friendship, I could call it uh, The Heart of Being Pro-Life. Um, that that to, um, to learn the practices of friendship, to develop the virtues of being a sort of character uh, who's looking for friendship, I think is, is really a, a, a key piece of pro-life. So, so I, I have you know, all of us have uh, sort of circles here. There are, there are close friends and we can't have very many because they're only, you know, 24 hours in a day, that sort of thing. But people that we, uh, but those are people we do need to be even closer to and, and more honest and forthright with. And that'll be not, that's not just comfortable in a fuzzy feeling, but that's, uh, that's also involves challenge and truth. Uh, uh, but God is always wanting to give us more friends. And so to be open to that sort of horizon, to be people who forgive and to try to understand 
if maybe I had someone who was a friend and I've fallen out with, God might be calling me to repent of something I did, or if if it's a fault that honestly speaking is more on the other person's part to indicate that I regret the falling out. You know, there are all, all sorts of, you know, there may be patterns of repentance in terms of society to show that we uh, that we appreciate the arguments of those we disagree with. Um, that uh, to, to demonstrate uh, charity, um, to have friends who are ideological opponents. Um, these are one, there, there's a wonderful friendship between Richard Brookheiser and his wife, and forgive me, all, all the listeners to the podcast, I can't remember her name. Um, but Richard Brookheiser is a editor of the conservative magazine, National Review, and his wife is a, a pro-choice woman, actually, and a psychologist. And she wrote a book after Trump was elected, you know, I love you, but I hate your politics. And, and the book is about, uh, and so they are a couple that manage um, uh, to love each other despite uh, a rather serious disagreement there, which she writes about and, and he also has talked about. So to show that we are able to do that and to always have hope that, um, that our enemies will not be our enemies forever. Um, just by the way, I think Jesus asks us to love our enemies because we, we hope that our enemies will be friends of Jesus and will love Jesus and thus will ultimately be our friends also. So I really, I really like the idea of sort of personalizing the, the pro-life ethic that we, we, we talk about it so much in terms of like policies and these mm-hmm. sort of macro issues when if it becomes something that is displayed and and active in our lives that re- that's our relationship with others that's that's it's about um showing dignity every day to the people we interact with to the friends that we talk to to the patterns of repentance that we engage in uh, it's a real personalized uh, sort of sense of dignity in the human person. And I really like that. Thank you. Thank you. It's, you know, um, one could say that to be pro-life means to be in favor of government-provided health care or something like that. Um, but when we move to a, a particular uh, political or social policy, a particular legislative policy, uh, if we are persuaded that that's really important, we also need to be able to say that we understand how people could be equally committed to every person having um, good health and access to the resources for good health uh, and, and, and medical care. Uh, and, and, but seeing that that could come about through some other way, that it, you know, the, there, there is a move from recognizing the dignity of people to saying that this is the way to foster that dignity in our society. Uh, and just to be, just to say that, you know, um, it goes a long ways. So outside of abortion and euthanasia, what do you think are some of the challenges for theological anthropology in particular in coming decades? I recently read again, Oliver O'Donovan's Begotten or Made? Question mark, uh, lectures on bioethics that he gave 40 years ago. They are remarkably prescient. Um, and I read them with some 22 year olds uh, who just out of college and they said, you know, it's like, he's talking to us. Um, O'Donovan says the, uh, with regard to all of the medical technology already on the, on the horizon in 1980, much more on the horizon today with regard to bringing about children, you know, 
in vitro fertilization, uh, we now have pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, all, all kinds of stuff about that. Um, uh, the matter of um, gender transitioning, uh, and in all sorts of other ways, that we start to think about, technology encourages us to think about human beings as the product of human will, that they are products of our manufacture. Self-manufacture is how, in a way, the transgender uh, arguments are being made. Uh, so that there is no difference between begetting and making. No difference between the, those things, those other, those others in the world who are my potential friends and equals, and those who are uh, my uh, objects for manipulation. Uh, this, I think the loss of that distinction is, uh, is, is still playing out and it's playing out in more and more ways. So to, to really think about that and to understand it more deeply, I see a lot of evangelicals who have, um, uh, who, who are still uh, very conservative, quote unquote conservative on some of the social issues, such as those I've just, well, such as gay marriage and uh, transgender uh, matters, um, but are quite accepting of, of contraception and in vitro fertilization. They have not, uh, I see a number of them coming to challenge those unexamined assumptions. Um, and uh, and be, behind that challenge, regardless of where we come out, I think there is a place to come out uh, on all of, I mean, I could see differing sorts of resulting points on all of these matters. Uh, but we must remember that another human being is not something we make. And O'Donovan says um, in his book, it is very hard to think of the scientist with the Petri dish who is uniting sperm and egg as being other than the role of the, of the maker. Uh, he has a little parable at the end of the book uh, where a very clever judge in a European court, all hypothetical, of course, um, claims that that person is in the place of God and thus cannot be sued. <laughs> There's a case of wrongful birth. <laughs> and the, the, the defense has said, you can't sue God. And, but this person says, ah, but the God in this is uh, the, uh, the technician. And so the technician with the doctor is also. That's a kind of big umbrella thing, you know? So, but we don't want to think of, just to speak more commonly, we do, uh, Kant says the point of human dignity is to treat each other people as ends, not as means. Um, or that we can reduce the, the categorical imperative to that, uh, that we can reduce all of morality. Um, when we start thinking of other people as, as means to my own happiness, as instruments of my own self-creation, of my own, as I make myself through my friends. Well, they're not really friends, are they? Uh, That's helpful. That's really, yeah. that's, thank you for giving us so much to think about today. <laughs> this has really been, uh, this has really been a rich conversation and we, we really appreciate you uh, coming on and, and talking through some of these things with us. At the end of every show, we like to kind of end uh, our heavy discussions with a, with a, with a kind of a, a, more, a, a lighter moment where we talk about something that we're into. It can be anything. It can be a book, a movie, TV show, music, an experience, whatever. So, Father Austin, what are you what are you into these days? Well, uh, <laughs> well, Father Wesley, uh, as as you remember from my class, I love films like um, 
um, uh, uh, artificial intelligence films, right? Uh, um, but um, my most recent fun film is Minari. I don't know if any of you have seen it yet. It's 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 in the theater here in Dallas, uh, which is open Saturday through or Friday, Saturday and Sunday only. Uh, when I went, there were three other people there. It's perfectly safe to go to. M-I-N-A-R-I, -I, um, set in Arkansas in the 1980s, a Korean immigrant family, um, sort of autobiographical uh, on the director's part. Uh, they moved to Arkansas, having spent 10 years in California uh, after first coming from Korea, um, where the parents do a very menial task of sexing chickens. They move out to, to try to save some money and get ahead. They move out to Arkansas. Uh, he has a idea of growing vegetables for Korean market. Uh, it's hard to explain because in a sense, it's so ordinary. Uh, there are weird religious people in it. Um, a guy who carries a cross on Sunday, a heavy cross on a dirt Arkansas road. He says, this is my church. He helps him on the farm. He speaks in tongues. He doesn't quite know what to do with it. But it, they're all treated with dignity. Just the characters are there. Um, a wonderful little boy. I saw it twice. It was no worse the second time. What was it called one more time? Minari, M-I-N-A-R-I. It's the Korean word for watercress. Well, I'll have to add that to, to my list. Yeah. Father Creighton, what are you into these days? Well, um, because finally we've got some sunshine and nice, nice weather, um, I grew up playing golf, and so I've been trying to get out on the golf course as much as I can um, and enjoy sunshine and good temperatures and things before it gets insanely hot and unbearable uh, in the southern summertime heat. Uh, but it's been a great way to just sort of get out and be by myself or, uh, you know, it's a good socially distance activity. You can go out by yourself. You don't have to be around every, everyone. And it's a, it's a good time to think and a good time to remind myself that I need to repent more often as I get angry at a bad golf shot or whatever it is. I was going to say, whenever I golf, I only think about how much I hate myself. So <laughs> That's certainly part of it. Father Miles, what are you into? Yeah, well, I think that perhaps some of our listeners, if you've been following closely the num past number of episodes, been picking up a theme that Liz and I in our life have been getting more interested in kind of um, land and kind of a spirituality of being connected with creation, particularly through maybe like hobby farming or something like this. And so our, our eventual goal is to move out to a piece of property and have more chickens than we already have and, you know, kind of live more of, as Father Wesley calls it, the great Tennessee life, uh, kind of inspired by Wendell Berry and some of those in that strand. But we found a hilarious TV show, or I should say my wife did, that is called Bless This Mess. And it is about a young married couple from New York City that moved to a small rural farming community in Nebraska because the husband inherits his aunt's farm and they go out with all these ambitions of resurrecting the farm and being, you know, great kind of, kind of, uh, I would say like a um, manifest destiny moving out West and everything's going to be great. And so it, it's a comedy. It's really goofy. It follows their life moving into um, farming and being terrified of cows. And what do you actually do with a chicken once you get one? And so it made me laugh and I, I just recommend it for sometimes you need a good laugh, especially as you're leading up to all the stress of Holy week. What, how do you, how do people watch it? Oh yeah. Sorry. It's on Hulu. Okay. Very good. Very good. Well, mine is uh, I've been into an album recently that just came out called give one, take one by the 68. So the 68 is a, is a band that I followed for a few years and uh, listeners know I kind of like, uh, heavier music, I guess. So this is a band and it's just a guitarist and a drummer and, uh, they are incredibly talented and, uh, it's kind of loud and it's, uh, it's, but it's really, really good. So that's what I've been into. I've been playing that on repeat lately. Well, 
to end today, Father Austin, uh, if listeners want to connect with you further, follow some of your work and stuff, where, where can they do that? Yes, um, I'm uh, on Twitter, although I'm not on it very often, but uh, uh, Victor Lee Austin is spelled out. Um, uh, my books are are on Amazon, which I like to call behemoth these days, <laughs> um, and other such places. Uh, um, and I do, I do, I write a weekly blog that appears on the Episcopal Diocese of Dallas uh, webpage. So that's E D O D, uh, Episcopal Diocese of Dallas.org. And um, it's probably forward slash diary of a theologian, diary hyphen of hyphen a hyphen theologian, something like that. And don't you have a, you have a newsletter as well, right? Is that just the blog that's sent out? Yes, I, I will. Um, if you, if you want, I can send that, um, you know, if, if people drop, drop me an email, I can send them, add them to the list and they don't, they don't have to find the blog. Oh. We can put we can put all this in our show notes too, so people can access uh, just by clicking the link uh, to the okay, to the cool. blog and awesome. to the newsletter. So yeah, perfect. And um, my email, you can give my email there. Great. Well, if you like what we're doing here at the Sacramentalist, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, and share us with your friends. You can email us with feedback or show ideas at the sacramentalists at gmail.com. And we like to end our shows this season with the collect from for social justice. Uh, Creighton, Father Creighton, would you pray that for us today? Sure. Let us pray. Almighty God, who has created man in thine own image, grant us grace fearlessly to contend against evil and to make no peace with oppression, and that we may reverently use our freedom Help us to employ it in the maintenance of justice among men and nations. To the glory of thy holy name, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.